today. And uh, boy, there are just some great principles in Romans chapter 14. And, you know, two, and here's what he's done. And, you know, Romans chapter 14 deals with, begins to deal with our association with other Christians. And what he does is, is he begins to take this chapter and he talks about two issues and he begins to show how, how there's so much pettiness in Christianity. And obviously, when we get to chapter 15, uh, the whole chapter 14 and 15 are all dealing with uh, uh, how we get along with each other as Christians. But in chapter 15, 1, it really sums up both chapters where it simply says this, Ye that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. And then it goes on to say, and not to please ourselves. That's really the role model for you and for me if we call ourselves mature Christians. We are to be the role models for younger Christians in everything we do. And I know by saying that, I, I understand that we're all human. We all make mistakes. And, uh, but what he's talking about here in this chapter is uh, some of the issues that you want to sidestep and, and really not make them biblical issues because they're really not. We had talked about and we've learned about the concept of somebody having a conviction about something and it becoming the, what they prefer or what we call a preference. We've talked about that versus something that's doctrinal and found in the Bible. I've introduced you to another concept that kind of goes along with this, and that is the aspect that there's a lot of things that we find in Christianity today and even find them in churches and God's people's lives that are Christian from a Christian standpoint, and they're spiritual because they bring God into it, but in reality, they have nothing to do with being biblical and scriptural. In other words, they're not found in the Bible. And I think that that's really what Paul's trying to get across here uh, when he gets into these two issues. And we saw last week, the first one, and it was a case study on eating meat. There had been an issue that he's dealing with about people who had come to the point where some people were vegetarians, other people were eating meat, and the weaker Christians were thinking that if you don't eat meat, you're more spiritual or it makes you a better Christian than somebody that eats meat. In other words, they were coming up like we see so many things today and we talked about it with a kind of a, a Christian diet. You know, if you don't eat certain things, you're a better Christian. And we looked at all of that and we talked about it. And today we're going to talk about the second issue. And the second issue, uh, when you put these two together it really sets up an example of many issues that we have to deal with. He just chose two. But within these two examples, you get the real the point. The point isn't about eating or special days. The point is basically that you and I, if we claim to be mature Christians, we need to understand how to choose our battles. We need to know when to stand for something and not stand for something and, and to give somebody grace in some area of their life because maybe they haven't got the light uh, in the Word of God that you and I may have. Now, I want to begin, begin reading uh, this thing in chapter 14, and we'll come down through the same verses, and then we're going to talk about another aspect of it. Remember now, all this goes together with understanding the great concept that we laid out two weeks ago and we're going to come back and build these things into that. And that was understanding your liberty in Christ. And just so we got a lot of new people here today and, uh, and just refresh your memory because, you know, we all forget things. Remember what we're talking about here, that now that Christ died on the cross, you know a lie and I'm no longer under the law. 
We don't, are not under the Ten Commandments. We've been set free from the law. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago, and now we're under grace. And with grace comes liberty. And the Bible says that all things now are lawful, but it also says that not all things are expedient. And we talked about that word being wise. We talked about the fact that all things are lawful, but it goes on to say that not everything that we do will edify either God, ourselves, or somebody else. What we've learned from this is the fact that, yes, we're not under the law, and we're under the liberty, and there's many things that you and I could go, places we could go, things we could do that really don't violate the Bible principle as such, but yet there are still things that we should not put in our lives because the fact that they don't edify. And the number one thing here that he's talking about is for you and I to never become, as an older Christian, a stumbling block for a younger Christian. And uh, I, I saw I saw one time when I was in Chicago, and I, I never forgot this. This has been many, many, many years ago. But uh, police officers used to carry a, a long nightstick, and they used to call them billy clubs. Now they call them PR-24s, and they've completely changed the whole thing. But back then, they used to carry a billy club. And it was a long club about that big, and it was pretty thick, and they would whack somebody over the head with it. And that's what they used before they had to shoot somebody. And I'm sure there were people who whacked them and then shot them. But anyway, that's what it was for. And I was in Chicago with my parents, and we were coming down out of a thing, and some guy must have shoplifted something, and he ran out of the store, and he ran down the street. And the cop, back then, they walked beats. They, you know, they didn't have all the cars they got now. And a police officer came up, and this guy got from about here to the last chair out there. And this cop was kind of overweight, and no way he was going to catch him, and he certainly can't shoot him. But I found that day that those kind of guys who've been on the force for 20, 30, 40 years, that billy club was more than just something to whack somebody with. It was a tool. And I was just a young kid, and I never, I never saw anything like this in my life. That guy was running. The cop just stood there. He took his billy club, flipped it around, and he threw that thing on the ground, and it, it worked its way up, and that guy's run and caught him between the legs, and he fell flat on his face. He walked up and put the cuffs on him, and I thought to myself, that was neat. At that point, I wanted to be a cop. Then I saw a house on fire, and firemen came in, and I wanted to be a fireman. See, my life was, was just everywhere that way. But anyway, years later, I thought to myself, that's exactly, this guy was running. Now, I know he was a criminal, and he was running away from the law and all of that, but he was running, and what the cop did was he threw his billy club out, and that billy club became a stumbling block that tripped him, and he fell flat on his face. And I thought of that many, many times in my own life with people. And uh, I would love to stand up here and say that I've never been a stumbling block to anybody's life. And that simply would not be true. We all have at some point or the other. But the bottom line is we don't want to consciously do that. Causing a younger Christian to stumble and to fall in their walk with God. Young Christians have a hard enough time working through the issues of just being a new Christian. They don't need people who are supposed to be more mature Christians putting stumbling blocks uh, in their life and in their, in their path with the Lord. So we've been talking about your liberty in Christ, and we'll get into that more today as we look at these other issues here. And you're going to learn some things today about, you know, why things are the way they are in, in your Bible, and I think you'll, you'll enjoy it. Now, Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 8, here's what it says. 
Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth they may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord, and he that regardeth not the day to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks, and he that eateth not to the Lord he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord. Now, Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus today. And Lord, I, I thank you for the opportunity to speak to these dear folks today. I, I paused this morning to look at, at how good you've been to us in this church. And, and Lord, even since the first of the year when we decided to move up to the next level and, 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 and steer a more serious course about ministry and our relationship with you. I think we've seen more people saved since we started the first of the year, Lord, than I can ever remember uh, in, 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 in years gone by in this church. You put your stamp of approval on what we're doing and the blessings of your hand are upon us and all that we do. I thank you for the people down in Warrensburg who, who, that you allow us to minister to, who have no church and no place to go. And those young kids down there that, that can't get up here on Sunday, that there's men and women in this church that are willing to go down and, and drive a long distance and, and be there for them. I thank you for the group in Wichita. Lord, I've known those folks down there for almost 30 years. And Lord, I know how much they love you and love your word and how they hang on to everything they can get, every tape they can find. And Lord, it's a privilege for us to send our young men and young ladies down there to, to minister to them and to take those three or four families and to help them. And Lord, we look down there because we know, Father, that our job is one of, of reproducing ourselves. I, first of all, need to reproduce myself and these men and women here. Then they need to produce themselves and other people. And in time, this church needs to produce itself with other churches. And Lord, we've already seen the very infant stages of that and help these young men and young ladies as they go down to minister your word to these people. Lord, thank us. Thank you for being so good to us and for giving us everything that we've ever needed, that your hand's been there every turn of the way. And Lord, as we come to this passage today, help us to continue to grow. Never let us ever get to the point where we stop growing spiritually. But always let us look around and look at those people that you've given us and our responsibility, not to hurt them, but to help them grow, to be there to give them everything that they need, that they might become everything that God wants them to become. And we'll thank you and praise you now in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Well, you know, the first issue we talked about last week was eating meat versus being a vegetarian. Now, the second issue we begin to see Paul talk about is the issue of what we call special days or holy days. And uh, he talks about this down here in verses 5 and 6. And let's read it again, verse 5 and 6. No man, uh, one man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day 
regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day to the Lord, he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not and giveth, uh, and not, and giveth God thanks. Now here's your issue you have, and it's the issue of special days. Now here's what the problem is. Some people here are viewing Sunday as a special day of the week, kind of like a holy day. Then you have other people that think that every day is a holy day. You know, this is the day the Lord hath made. Let us be glad and rejoice. They take that route. Then you have other people who think there's no such thing as a holy day or no special days, uh, and every day is alike. And, you know, this is where you have to be able to see how these things are. And people actually get into these things. People actually come to the point where you find these three different areas right here that you're going to deal with when you deal with people. You know, it never ceases to amaze me, and I, I, I see it all the time, and I'm sure you do too. It never ceases to amaze me how little God's people really understand the Bible. We are a people of God who basically are oblivious to the Word of God. We have no idea what God said, what He meant when He said it. I, I get the impression that most of God's people in Christianity are like that little proverbial rat in a maze where you got a piece of cheese at the end, that would be our heaven, and we just bump our way through the maze of life trying to get there, when in actuality, if you were a smart little rat, you'd have a little map in your back pocket and you'd find the cheese just like that. Well, God has given our, us as rats a little map, and that map shows you exactly how to get where you need to get. But it never ceases to amaze me how God's people really don't understand the Bible. About five or six weeks ago, our government passed uh, health care. And if you remember about that, they we were in a crunch. They were trying to get it done before the final session was done and, and all of those things. And so they, they stayed there for long hours, you know, and finally it came down and they were going to take the vote. And they finally took the vote on Sunday. And oh, my goodness, as I watched the news and I watched what the opposition was saying, you know, and all of the things that was going on. They were talking about all the things of Obamacare, you know, and all that, and whether you like it or not, it's immaterial. But the thing that I found interesting was this. I remember a couple of senators getting up, and they were incensed. They were enraged that we would do, God's, we would do government business on God's day. That we would do government. One of them even said it. I just think it's totally irresponsible and wrong to conduct the government business on the Sabbath. And you know, and I, I thought to myself, there's so many people out there that think that Sunday is a Sabbath, you know. And in, in Israel was told not to do anything on the Sabbath in the Old Testament, so we're not to work on Sunday, the Sabbath, and all of those things. And, you know, the truth of the matter is, it's a little bit more than that if you know your Bible. If you're going to observe the Sabbath, if you go back to the Old Testament, you can't even cook on the Sabbath. They had to cook their food the day before. You can't feed your animals. Uh, you can't, uh, you can't uh, in fact, in the Bible, it's in Acts chapter 1, verse 12, and who even knows this? There's what is called a Sabbath day journey. In other words, on the Sabbath, you could only walk so far. And uh, you couldn't, if that's, with that being true, you couldn't go to church. You certainly couldn't go to the mall. You couldn't go to a ball game. You're basically under house arrest for that day if you're following the Sabbath. You can't build a fire. You can't gather wood. You can't fix meals. You can't do anything. Now, in the Old Testament, there is a reason for that. And here's the point. For you to understand 
about the concept of holy days today, you need to understand what those holy days in the Old Testament represented. Now, Israel was given the Sabbath. And they're given that Sabbath based on Genesis chapter 2, where God worked six days, created everything, and then the Bible says he rested the Sabbath. And you know what? Some people actually think that God got tired. That God worked six days like you and I did, and then on the seventh day, he just went, oh, man, I am beat. I'm going to take a break. And yet you laugh at that, but actually that's what people believe. My mother told me that many, many, many years ago. And I believed it till I was grown up, you know, 30 or 40, I, 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 because she told me that. And that many times people say that because they don't know what else to say. Truth of the matter is, if you know anything about your Bible and that chart over there, you know that there's a reason doctrinally in the Bible why God worked six days and then he rested on the seventh. In fact, in, uh, in Genesis chapter 2, in the first three or four verses, he tells you, that when God came to the seventh day, he sanctified it, he made it holy, and he set it apart from the other six days. Now, why did he do that? He did that for Israel because that seventh day represents the millennial Sabbath that's going to go to the nation of Israel. Had nothing to do to me. Somebody says, well, Sunday's the Sabbath. No, no, no. In the Bible, the Sabbath is Saturday. And not only is that a problem for you, but it starts 6 o'clock on Friday and goes till 6 o'clock Saturday, and then we come to Sunday, which is not the seventh day. Sunday is the first day of the week. You see, you got to know and understand a little bit about the Bible. When I was a kid, we had what we called the Blue Law. And some of you older folks probably remember the Blue Law. I don't know why they called it the blue law, but the blue law basically said that you couldn't, it was, you couldn't work on Sunday. Now, today, we live in a world where you can do anything on Sunday. There's no, no remnant of the blue law anywhere. When I first moved to Missouri in 1975, end of 75, 76, Kansas was still a dry state. You couldn't buy liquor, alcohol in Kansas. And you say, and we don't even, and today you can get it anywhere you want. It's no longer a dry state. Somebody looks back there and says, in 1976, why was Kansas, and there were some other states, but why was Kansas a dry state that if you wanted to drink booze, you had to go over to Missouri? Because Kansas was still feeling the weight of the old Philadelphian Billy Sunday days when he preached on prohibition, and they still had made those laws, and those laws were on the book as they came along and got farther down and people got farther away from everything, they, re, they took those laws away, much like the blue law. Now, I remember going to church as a young kid where you had to eat at home because the restaurants weren't open. And you were told from the pulpit, if the restaurants that were open don't go there because you're violating the day of rest. And I actually remember that based on the blue law. And you didn't, you didn't work on Sunday back then for anything in the world. And I remember preachers getting up and they talk about the fact that if you got to work and they're going to fire you if you don't work, then you got to do it. But you should not work on Sunday because Sunday is, is the Lord's day. And, and that's the issue we're dealing with here in Romans. Some people are looking at, at, at Sunday as a special day. Other people are looking at every day as a special day. <laughs> and there's some people who are saying, they're all the same to me. And that's the issue that he's talking about here. Now, the blue law came into, into a being because of a group in America back in the 1600s called the Puritans. 
And if you know anything about your history, you know that the Puritans came in two groups. There was one group that was very fundamental, very Bible-believing, and very much uh, evangelistic. That would be your pilgrim fathers that came over. But I guess in the next 20 or 30 years after the pilgrims landed at Plymouth, not in a Plymouth, at Plymouth, some 20 to 30,000 other people came over, and many of them were the other brand of Puritans, and those were the, those were the ones that were the uh, Calvinists. And you've got a King James Bible there. You'll find in the dedicatory, and that's the opening remarks where it says to the most high and mighty Prince James, defender of the faith, da 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 When the King James translators wrote the King James Bible and put it out, they put what they called a dedicatory in that. A dedicatory is basically tells you why they, why they did a Bible. And it goes down through there, and they tell you that your King James Bible was written against two people groups. Only Bible in the world that in its beginning, in the front of the Bible, tells you that that book was written against two groups of people. And the reason why you can't buy a King James Bible today in any bookstore that has a dedicatory in it, because that dedicatory is uh, it, it's pretty rough on people today. But if you got the 1728 edition of the King James Bible and you got a dedicatory in the front, if you read that thing down through there, you'll find that that King James Bible, the translators who translated that, wrote that Bible in defense of criticism and torture and persecuting. They were getting from two people groups. The first one, he says in there, is popish person. Now, you can figure, figure that one out on your own. The second group it's written about is a group called Conceited brethren. And those conceited brethren will be the Puritan groups that were very right wing, left wing, or whatever you want to talk about. Remember the Salem witch trials? Salem witch trials took place in Salem, Massachusetts. What? 1692, somewhere like that? 1692, 1690, somewhere like that. Salem, Massachusetts. And when you read in history, you read about the Salem witch trials, and you read about, if you read anything at all on it, you'll be told today that it is one of the darkest times in American history, and it is. But what was the Salem witch trials? You know, I know we watch televisions, you know, and the spooky movies are all put up there, you know, Salem's Lot, you know, and all that, and witchcraft and all that stuff. But, but the Salem witch trials were simply what, what I just said. In Salem, Massachusetts, a group of Christians started to deciding who was witches and who was not. And uh, basically what they did is they took probably, I think the total was something like 20,000 people uh, that were actually burned at the stake for being a witch. And of course, uh, it's one of the darkest times in church history. And, you know, people look at that and they scratch their head and they say, wow, was there really witchcraft back then? Well, no more than there is today. But that's not what, that's not what happened. The group that burned these people were Puritans. And they were so strict on the law because that they, they, they didn't call them Puritans for nothing. They were such hypocritical, pharisaical people that if you didn't do it the way they told you to do it, they would kill you, much like the Roman Catholic Church. And add to that the depravity of, of their old flesh, they used, once they were in power, 
they used the religion that they had to go around and say, you're a witch, you're not, you're a witch, you're not, you're a witch. And they, if they had a grudge against somebody, they just went up to the guy and said, I saw this woman out the backyard. She was doing some spooky things. I think she was casting a spell. She might have just been hanging up her clothes. But if they didn't like you, they went and told whoever was in charge and you got arrested, and you didn't have a trial. They called it the Salem Witch Trial. Yeah, right. The trial was, <laughs> you're a witch. And then you got burned at the stake. We find even up into the 50s and the 60s in our country, some of those laws that they enacted back there because they thought the Sunday was a Sabbath. And they enacted those laws into our, into our government, and many states carried those laws down, and it's based on the Puritans. Not the good branch, but the, but the conceited brethren branch that was responsible for many, many people being burned at the stake. And the bottom line and the truth of the matter is this, folks. There's really, in all of this, the reality is there's absolutely no connection between Sunday for you and me and the Sabbath in the Bible. There's no Christian Sabbath, just like there's no Christian diet, just like there's no Christian Jews. Uh, there's no, there's, there's just like there's no Christian business. You, God didn't, God didn't take a day of rest and give it to you and me. Sunday's not the day of rest. God didn't work seven days and then rest on the seventh. So we work six days and rest on the seventh and take Sunday off. Sunday in the Bible, as I said, is the first day of the week. And it sets a doctrinal issue for the nation of Israel, never for the church. Now, saying all that. Now you know where some of this stuff begins to come from. With all that being said, this is the context of Romans chapter 14. Some of God's people call Sunday the Lord's Day. Now here's why we do that. Because in Mark chapter 16, verses 2 and 9, when Christ comes out of that tomb and he rises from the dead, he he arose from the dead the first day of the week. When he appeared to his disciples in in Mary... John chapter 20, verse 19, it was the first day of the week. In Acts chapter 20, you're told that the New Testament church meets on the first day of the week. They took up the collection, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, on the first day of the week. The Holy Spirit of God came the first day of the week, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. So from that, because of all the events that took place, God's people get the idea That Sunday now is some kind of holy day versus the other day. And that's where they get it from. But the truth of the matter is this. The Bible never gives that any designation. In fact, the Bible never even gives it a name. He just calls it the first day of the week. We'll see why in a moment. Now, so people get from that that that's a holy day. And yet there's only one holy day, if you know your Bible, found in the Bible as far as the nation of Israel is a day of rest. And actually in Genesis chapter 2, the seventh day when God set it apart, sanctified it, and made it holy, and it represents the millennial Sabbath. Now let me ask you a question. Do you know why God never gave any attention or any designation to the first day of the week? Do you ever, did you ever stop and wonder why he didn't make that a special day and a holy day? I'll tell you why. He didn't do that the same reason. If you ever notice some things that Jesus chose not to do, you realize when it came to his own mother in the Bible, in the Gospel of John was a chapter 2 there, when she comes to him and asks him a question, you notice that he never calls her mother. He calls her woman. 
Now, if I was growing up and I, my mom said something and I looked at her and I said, woman. <laughs> People read that and they think to themselves, why did, why did Jesus call his, his own mother woman and she was his mother? Why did, I mean, he was born from her womb. Why didn't he call her mother? You know why he didn't? I'll tell you why he didn't. Because he knew the moment he would call his earthly mother, mother, that down the line someplace, some religion would take that term and develop that concept. And before you know it, they'd have being Mary being made the mother of God. They did it anyhow. But you can't go back to the Bible and prove it. You see what I'm talking about? Now, I'll tell you something else he refused to do. Jesus never baptized anybody. You ever notice that? You ever notice in John chapter 4 verse 2, it talks about that many people are baptized by Jesus. And then it says in the next verse, parentheses, but Jesus himself never baptized anybody. Now, why, uh, why, why, why would he not baptize people? Well, I'll tell you one of the reasons why is because in the book of Corinth, and we're going to look at this when we study the church at Corinth, in chapter 1 and 2, they're arguing about who baptized who. While they're saying over here, this guy's saying, well, I was baptized by the apostle Paul. And this guy says, I was baptized by Ralph Schwartz. <clears throat> and the guy says, well, who's Ralph Schwartz? Well, he's just a pastor. Well, I was baptized by the apostle Paul. And they're tagging some significance that because Paul baptized you, it makes you a better Christian than if Ralph Schwartz baptized you. His name was Ralph Schwartz, but I can't remember what it was. Can you imagine what would happen if Jesus would have baptized people? And I'll tell you another reason he didn't do it. Because he never wanted baptism associated with salvation. Did Jesus save people? You bet he did. The woman at the well. All kinds of people that got saved in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You see, what he wanted to do, and here's what he knew. He knew that there would be a group of people down the line who would say that baptism is essential for your salvation. And he wanted to make sure that when those people came on the scene, they couldn't go any place in the Bible. Because isn't it strange that the same Jesus that saved people is the same Jesus that refused to baptize people? How can salvation be baptism when the one very Savior refused to baptize people? You got to see things like that in your Bible. You want another one? Oh, you ain't going to like this one either. You think the greatest you think the greatest you think the greatest guy in the world who was the greatest healer in the world and did everything in the world and set the example for everybody. Jesus is my model. Jesus is my example. Really? How come Jesus never spoke in tongues then? If he's the model, why didn't he speak in tongues? He not have the spirit of God? Somebody said, well, you don't have the Spirit of God if you don't speak in tongues. Jesus didn't speak in tongues. A voice crying in the wilderness. Amen. I'll tell you something else. Ever read over there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about the Lord's Supper? 
You know what he says about the Lord's Supper? He tells you how important it is to God. He tells you what it represents and what it means and how absolutely crucial it is for you and me to understand that when we take the Lord's Supper, what we're doing. In fact, he calls it discerning the Lord's body. And then what he tells you about this absolutely ecstatic, ecstatic, great doctrine in the Bible, he says, do it as often as you will. He didn't say do it every week, every month. Do you ever wonder why God never gave any license to those things? Because he knew what human nature would do with it. Human nature would take something and he would make a tradition out of it. And when you make a tradition out of something, you lose the value of what is really there. Christmas and Easter. If you want two examples, just take those two. Christmas is supposed to be the birth of Christ. (laughs) Come on. I guarantee you, when your kids run down the steps or come out of the bedroom at 5.30, oh, dark 30 in the morning on Christmas morning, the last thing they're caring about is this is the birth of the Savior. It's the greatest commercial time of, of, of the year. And the closer we get to the coming of the Lord, the less Christ becomes associated with it. Now at school, they don't even call it Christmas break. It's got the word Christ in it. It's the winter festival. You can't have a nativity scene in a public building, but it's still Christmas. God's son, God knew what man would do with it. He'd make something it's not. He'd make a tradition out of it. He'd make a religious doctrine out of it. And so in those things, he never, never, never put the emphasis on it. And that's why he never put the emphasis on Sunday being a holy day. Because he knew what man would do with it. He knew what he'd do with it. Now, very, uh, very frankly, that's why we, don't, uh, we, we, we understand that it's a, it's a doctrinal thing. That's why we don't give uh, people an option to come on Sunday night to church so you don't have to get up on Sunday morning. We talked yesterday in Bible Institute about patterns, didn't we? Uh, What you have in this particular section here about the day of the Lord, the first day, Sunday, that's the pattern the New Testament church set. I don't do it because it's a holy day. I do it because it's a pattern found in the Bible. And I'll tell you something else about human nature. It's always looking to fulfill self. It's always looking to take a license to do what it wants to do over what the Bible says. Every religion on the face of this planet will build its whole doctrine around Mary, Jesus baptizing when he didn't, and all of the things that goes on that you cannot go to the Bible and find. Why? Because man will always, listen to me, man will always take a license out of the Bible to do what he wants to do when it's not even found in the Bible. That's just human nature. Last week we talked about liberty in Christ. And I guarantee you, every time somebody asks a question on Thursday night, I'm not so worried about it on Sunday morning because you have pretty much control over and know who's here. But on Thursday night, everybody's time somebody asks me a question about your liberty in Christ, I get a little antsy on it because I know that when I teach it biblically and I teach really what liberty in Christ is, 
no matter that I put the whole thing together in the right context, people, human nature, are going to hear what you want to hear so you can walk out the door and do what you want to do and then say, I heard it in Sunday school. That's human nature. You remember last week I gave you two of my favorite rules. Never, never emphasize something more than God does and never underemphasize something more than God does. And God knows exactly what we'll do. Now, Bible Christianity is the most traditionalized setup you've ever seen. And, of course, we know that in Colossians chapter 2, and we know that this is a mark of the Laodicean church, he says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy. So we got a lot of philosophy today. Vain deceit, a lot of deceit going on today. And then he says, After the tradition of men and the rudiments of the world. And we've got churches today, religions today, built around the traditions. And that's why Jesus was very careful, never in anything he wrote in that Bible, to lend himself to tradition. When we started our church, I, 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 I knew some, several pastors around here. And one of them was an older guy that had been my friend. And, and, uh, and uh, he really helped us start the church. If you remember, he, he came and spoke to us when we first started our church. And he pulled me aside afterwards, and he said, well, you all ready to go? And I said, yep. <clears throat> he says, uh, what time's your church service on Sunday morning? I told him 1030. He says, what time's your evening church service? I said, we don't have one. Now, when I told him he didn't have a Sunday night church service, I could see his countenance change. Because he's been raised all his life in a system that you have Sunday night church service. And if you do not have a Sunday night church service, you just can't be godly. So you imagine what happened to him when he found out we don't have a Wednesday night church service either. (laughs) Because in Baptist tradition, and most of you who come out of dead Baptist churches, you know this is true. Sunday night and Wednesday night are the two times of the week that you have a midweek service and you have a Sunday night service. You know why they do that? If you ask the average pastor why he did that, he'd just look at you. You know why? Because he doesn't know why he does it either. He does it because they've done it that way all down through history. Like they had in the book of Acts, Wednesday night church service. Like they had, I got news for you. In the book of Acts, when they went to church, they stayed all day. Try that one out. He says, what time does Sunday school start? I said, we don't have a Sunday school. We do it at the same time. What? How do you build a church without Sunday school? Well, I don't know. Sunday school was started by a guy by the name of Robert Rakes in 1880, what, four or five? What did they do before then? See how traditionalized we become? We think those things are in the Bible. Those things are not in the Bible. New Testament Bible Christianity is set up after a pattern, and that pattern is the Lord came out the first day. It's based on a doctrinal issue, the resurrection, not the day, not the day. It's the issue, and what happens is when you get so focused on the day, you'd forget the doctrine. That's what we do. It's exactly what we do. There is no such thing as a Christian holy day. It's built on the doctrine of the resurrection, and he simply called it the first day of the week. Now, you look at our ministry here. When I started this church, I figured that out a long time ago. And I basically come to the point where we don't have a Sunday night church service. We don't have a Wednesday night church service. 
I learned a long time ago that if I got two events, maybe three in the week, that I can get everything else I need. Everything else is an add-on, but the main thing that you build this around, and I've said it many, many times, Sunday morning, Thursday night, and then for those of you who really want to get to the point where you, you get some things worked out, the one-on-one with me. If you really want to learn the Bible, the key is sitting down with somebody who will personally take the time to teach you. Now, I don't profess to know everything about the Bible, but I have a pretty good handle on why I believe what I believe. But at the same time, I'll tell you this. I don't have that because I just figured it out myself. Paul set the pattern a long time ago when he said, the same things that I've committed to you, you take and commit to faithful men. When you come over one-on-one with me, I commit to you the things that Mel Shabaka committed to me. He, commit, he committed to me the same thing somebody committed to him. And the line goes right back because that's the way you learn it. I don't know where we got the idea that if you get saved, you come to church and you get a King James Bible and you go to sleep for every night at one day after 10 or 15 years, the roof will roll back and the pixie dust will come down and you'll just wake up spiritual and know your Bible and handle life. You have to get somebody to help you put it together, learn it, and get that thing and then take the trials of your life, mix it with what somebody's teaching you and helping you, hand-cutting it to where you're at. I told you a couple of weeks ago, you can go to a department store and you can buy a tailor, you can buy a suit already made up for you. And you can put the top on and you get the pants and if your waist is bigger than your shoulders, then you can, you can, you can go down three sizes, you can get a 38 jacket and a 67 pants or whatever you need and you can put that all together and walk out of there. But you know what? You can buy that pretty cheap. But if you really want a class suit, you know where you go? You get a tailor who takes one person at a time and makes a suit to fit your body, no matter how ugly it is. <laughs> That's what you need biblically. We don't mass produce Christians here. If you're going to ever get where you're going to get, you have to be built one person at a time. And most pastors are just not willing to do that. They're in the mass production, like they are in mass evangelism. And, of course, uh, that just doesn't work. I built my ministry around that day uh, based on a model of the first day of the week. I do that the same way I use a King James Bible. It was the pattern set down to the New Testament church. And I tell you right now, you give me Sunday morning, Thursday night, and give me one-on-one with you, and I'll get you cooking on the Word of God so fast you won't know what hits you. And then if you want a deeper thing, if you want to go beyond that, if you want your calling, make your calling sure, and you get everything, and you really want a piece of this thing, then you got Bible Institute, you got Bible Basics, you got everything else you need to help put it together. But it's one person at a time. That's the system. God knew we'd focus on the day and lose the whole event because that's what Christians do. They come to church because they're supposed to be here and they don't even know why they're here. Now, with regard to the issue of the day here in verse 5 and 6 in Romans chapter 14, here is the bottom line. If you want to call Sunday the Lord's day, it's okay. If you want to call every day the Lord's day, that's okay. If you want to call they're all right and none of them are all none of them are special and are all the same, that's okay. It's not an issue to fight over. I'm a Bible believer. I somewhat know my Bible. And I know from a biblical doctrinal standpoint, 
when you find the day, the Lord's day, the day of the Lord, that day, it's never referring to Sunday. It's always referring to the second coming of Christ. I know that. I am not threatened by somebody saying, well, thank you for being in church on the Lord's day. I don't care about that. I understand. I know what I believe. I'm not going to get confused in it. And if somebody wants to go through their life looking at it that way, that's what he said, wasn't it? Let every man be persuaded in his own mind. It's not an issue to fight over. I'm not going to church you for it. We're not gonna, you're not going to have a problem with me in any way, shape, or form, if, or anybody else should. But you need to understand, from a Bible standpoint, it's only, your Bible is built around two days. There are two special days in your Bible. And those are the only two days you need to worry about. The first day is the day of Christ, or sometimes it's called the day of Jesus Christ. You know what that day is? That's the day of the rapture. The second one is the day of the Lord, that day, the day. You know what that is? That's the second coming of Christ. Those are the only two holy days found in your Bible. And one of them has to do with you and me as a child of God being raptured out of this mess. The other one has to do with Christ coming back for the nation of Israel. And your whole Bible is built around those two days. Just like that. I know that. So when somebody gets up and says, well, this is a great day that the Lord has given us. This is the Lord's day. I just say, amen. Praise the Lord. And maybe it'll be the real day that I'm looking for. Let me show you how ridiculous people can be. Take your Bibles for a minute and turn over to Revelation chapter 1. I'm going to show you this. Now, if you ever get a commentary on Revelation, 99.999% of them will tell you what I'm going to show you here. This is crazy. And my goal today is not to give you a breakdown outline of the book of Revelation, but you're going to get the entry level to it in just a second. Now, obviously, the book of Revelation is probably one of the hardest books that people think there is in the Bible. Personally, I think it's the easiest book in the Bible. If you want a hard book in the Bible, it's Romans. But everybody looks at Revelation, and because it's future, because there's a lot of stuff that looks allegorical, because there's a lot of stuff that looks like it's symbolism, that you feel you've got to have some kind of key to figure out all the symbolism, so it's a great mystery book. And they give it all kinds of names, you know, uh, other than the book of Revelation. They call it the apocalypse. <laughs> wow, that's impressive. What does that mean? I ain't got a clue what it means, but it sounds really neat. Now look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. And I'll tell you what most commentaries tell you. Now this is what I'm about to give you is the key of you understanding the book of Revelation. The key to understanding Revelation is just two verses. Because that's how simple God made it. But let me show you how people get messed up when they don't know their Bible and this day thing becomes something that they, they don't put it in the right context. And again, man, if we go out to eat this afternoon and you say, boy, this is, this is a great Lord's day today, I'm going to say amen. Can you pass the Tabasco sauce? I mean, I'm with you, man. I'm with you. But you need to understand. Look at Revelation 1.10. John speaking. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Now, every commentator you're going to find or read on Revelation, know he's going to tell you? He's going to tell you that John saw this thing on Sunday, first day of the week. That's what he's going to tell you. 
And of course, if you take that position, you're never going to figure out the book of Revelation. Now, the second verse you need is found in the same chapter. Look at verse 19. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which thou which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Now, those two verses are the key to the book of Revelation. But if you don't understand what he's talking about when he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, <laughs> and you think it's Sunday, whoo, you're going to have some tough times. Now, here's the key. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, you want an outline of the book of Revelation? You want to go home and, and understand it just like that as far as the outline of it? Here it is, two verses. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, all right? I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. The Lord's day, right here it is. Second coming of Christ. Now, John is down here in 90 AD. And what God does is he picks him up in the spirit, whisk him forward 2,000 plus years and puts him at the Lord's day, second coming. And when he's at the second coming, verse 19 of chapter 1, he says, now write. But write in three tenses, John. And it's these three tenses that you understand the breakdown of the book of Revelation. He's at the, he's at the, day, the Lord's day. He was in the spirit. God took him from 90 AD, brought him up and put him on the second coming of Christ, right where it takes place. And then he says, write three things. Write what thou hast seen. That would be the tribulation, the rapture, and the church age. The things that thou hast seen, the things that are, that would be the second coming. And then he says, the third thing, the things which shall be. That'll be the millennium and eternity. So when you're reading the book of Revelation, you don't read it from John in 90 AD trying to figure out what all this stuff is from 90 AD. You've got to understand that he's picked up and taken to the second coming of Christ and he writes in a past, present, and a future. But the present when he writes is the Lord's day. You don't understand that. You ain't going to figure Revelation out. We had a guy here a couple of weeks ago on Thursday Night Bible Study. Some of you guys were talking to him. He wanted to make the Revelation book <coughs> written in 60 A.D., 66 A.D. <coughs> and he was adamant that the book of Revelation was written in 60 A.D., 66 A.D. And he was adamant that it wasn't written in 90 A.D. You know why he's adamant that it wasn't written in 90 A.D. and has to have it written in 66 uh, A.D.? Because if he has it written in 66 A.D., then he can say all the destruction in Revelation is the Titus coming down in 70 A.D., destroying Jerusalem. Because he didn't do that till 70 A.D., so he's 66, he's still four years out. And he just takes it that way through history. And he misses the whole book. The whole book has nothing to do with Titus coming down and destroying anything. The book has to do with the second coming of Christ and John looking back and seeing the tribulation period, the rapture, and the church age. And then he sees the second coming. And then he sees the, he sees the millennium and eternity. And that's the perspective you've got to break down the book. All built around the Lord's day. The Lord's day. There are no holy days for you and for me. Go back to Colossians chapter 2. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but again, it needs to come on in here. Look at Colossians chapter 2 verse 11. 
And the reason why you don't fight with younger Christians over these things. Hey, if I got somebody coming in here and you're just a young Christian, or maybe you've been saved for a lot of years, but you've been in a church where you got no Bible training and nobody worked with you, or you just got saved, and you think Sunday's the Lord's day, you know what? That is absolutely wonderful for me. Because you know why? Because if you take advantage of Sunday morning, Thursday night in a one-on-one, and you get discipled and begin to grow, you'll figure it out. You'll figure it out. Now look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. In whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Here it comes, blotting out. The handwriting of the ordinances that was against us, Old Testament, which was contrary to us, Old Testament, and took it out of the way. How? Nailing it to his cross. Then, we saw this the other week. When he died on the cross, the Old Testament was taken out of our lives. Now, watch this. And having spoiled principalities and powers, that'll be the devil and his crew, he made a show of them openly triumphing over, uh, triumphing over them in it. Now, look at verse 16. Let no man therefore, 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 because of what he just said about it being the Old Testament being nailed to his cross, that the blotting out of the handwriting of the ordinances was against us. They're gone now. And because of that, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink. We talked about that last week, eating and drinking. In respect of a, here it comes, holy day or the new moon or the Sabbath day, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Now, because we're in the New Testament, let no man judge you by what you eat or what you drink in any holy days. No respect to any holy day, any Sabbath day, because there are none in a New Testament Christian. There is absolutely no day or holy day for a, uh, uh, for a Bible-based child of God to believe in if you understand your Bible. There's only two days in that Bible for you and me. One of them is the day of Jesus Christ when I get raptured out of here, and the other one is the day he comes back at the second coming. But it doesn't bother me if somebody wants to call today the Lord's day. Yeah, I could care less. You know what? As much as if you have a Christian uh, tree, Christmas tree in your house and an Easter egg hunt in your backyard. It's not a doctrinal issue, and as long as you understand it. A number of years ago, there was a guy who was very prevalent in Christian circles, and he was prevalent in the legalistic Christian circle. And you don't hear much about him anymore, but his name was Bill Gothard. And I knew Bill Gothard personally. I had talked to him on several occasions, and uh, and, uh, you know, so what I'm saying here, I'm not speaking out of school. I, I knew him. I talked with him. And uh, I had been at several of his seminars, seminars, and they used to did, and, and all of those things. And there was some good stuff in it. But he's one of these kind of guys that got hooked on the fact that there was a Christian diet. He, he preached from the, his big thing was sexual sins. That was his big stick. And he even said one time, he says, if you eat red meat, he says, it will have you be sexual uh, you'll be sexual, whatever it was. Uh, it, it's not true. I ate raw hamburger all week long. It didn't do a thing for me. <laughs> but his deal was that there was a Christian diet you had to eat. 
And if you had ate raw meat or meat with blood in it, that somehow that raw blood got into your blood and you became, oh, you know where it goes. If you eat raw meat with animal meat and it's got blood in it and you eat that ingested, Bible says back in the Old Testament that you don't eat blood. Remember that? So what happens is you eat the meat with blood in it and it's the blood of an animal and you digest it. You know what you turn into? An animal! He's the same guy that about three years later was getting up and preaching that cabbage patch dolls, remember those? Cabbage patch dolls were made in a place that were prayed over by witches. And remember when you bought your cabbage patch, they came with a name? And those names were given by witches and put in a little box so when you gave your kid a cabbage patch doll, you gave them something that was already demon-possessed. That's what he taught. And you, you know, you're laughing. You would be surprised of God's people that had crusades against cabbage patch dolls. <laughs> uh, I'm not kidding you. There were Baptist churches and pastors got onto that and preached that, and it was the stupidest thing you ever saw in your life. And yet those same guys that would preach on cabbage patch and red meat eating you, making you a sexual Tyrannosaurus Rex or whatever it is, and, and all of those things were the same guys that every day on their, on their calendars and in their, in their little notebooks, they would, look at, they would look at Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Do you ever notice that Jesus doesn't call them Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday? He calls them the first day of the week, the second day of the week, the third day of the week. You know why? Because Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday were the names of the pagan Roman gods that they named the names after. You see, he didn't want your kid to have a cabbage patch, but on his, on his, on his planner, he let his weeks and his days go by the Greek Roman gods. Saturday is Saturn. Friday is Freya, the god of sex. Every one of those... Every one of those. It's the same way. Did you notice that? You got to get this. You know that God never calls it January, February, March, April, May, June, July, August, September, August, November, December. He never does that. Did you ever notice that he has his own name for the months? That the name for our months that we use in our calendar, again, are the pagan Roman gods that they built their feasts around in the time of years around? Now, that's okay. You don't see me scratching out my calendar. You don't see me finding a biblical calendar. You know why? I don't care. They mean nothing to me. Now, I don't believe for a heartbeat that they put demon-possessed names in cabbage patch dolls. But you know what? So what if they did? Greater is he that is in you that's in the world. I'm I'm not, you worried about a cabbage patch doll when you're probably working with people in the office that are a thousand times more demon possessed than a cabbage patch doll. (laughs) I got some in the front row here I'm worried about and I'm right here only six feet from them. (laughs) My point is this, and it's a great truth. And this leads us to the next section. God looks at the world one way, doesn't he? Even down to the months of the year and the days of the week. And we look at it from another way. That's a great truth. Do you think if God looks at the months differently than we do and names them differently? And he won't even use the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, but gives them a numerical number? 
Do you think if he looks at that differently, he doesn't look at the things we do in our life differently? I, I, I don't know if you can grasp that today or not. I hope you can. It's an incredible concept. It's an incredible concept. But I'm telling you, my friend, the thing that you've got to understand is that, that God looks at things one way differently than you and I do. All right, let's move on to the next verse down through here. We've pretty much got the day system set up, and you pretty much understand that. Now, let me show you, let me show you a great verse here. I told you, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, that this great chapter, chapter 14, was built around four or five great biblical principles. And I want to look at the first one here uh, in this next verse, and then we're going to talk about another one next week and come right on through them and build the rest of the chapter around it, just like what we've done. These great principles are, are, are really the, the whole concept of our liberty in Christ. And our understanding of it in light of being a mature Christian is absolutely essential. Look at verse 7. For no, none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. Now this verse obviously in the context here is dealing with the aspect of eating and drinking and holy days. But I want to tell you something. This verse right here should hit every one of us right between the eyeballs. Simply, my friend, it's simply this. Remember I told you God looks at things one way? We look at them another way? Well, the great principle here is this. Somebody's always watching our lives. If you're saved here this morning, somebody is watching your life. Your life is not your own. The Bible told you that. You're bought with a price. You know, it's a simple fact, and most people never understand this. People don't listen to what you say. Some of you talk about God and how much you love God and you carry your Bibles and you do everything in the world and you're here Sunday morning, Thursday night and come to everything in the world. You know what? Your own personal life is a disaster. Your kids see it. Your friends see it. You just can't see it. You think there's a set of rules for you and there's a set of rules for everybody else. People don't listen to what you say. They simply watch how you live your life. You know, I heard years ago, and this was a, this, I've never gotten over this story. And it was one of those old preachers, and he said this, and, he, and I never would have ever thought of that in this way. But he told the story of the denial of Peter in Matthew chapter 26. And you know in that story what happens. Peter, and I'll tell you, when you study the apostles, I ain't kidding you, man. If you want to find yourself and where you're at with God, study the lives of the 12 apostles. But in that 12, you know as well as I do, there were three that are called the inner three. And they're everywhere with the Lord. Their name is Peter, James, and John. The study those three men are an absolute gold mine of information about you and my relationship with God and what it should be. And, and Peter is an incredible story. Peter is somebody who's always writing, he's always writing checks with his mouth that his body can't cash. And he's always shooting his mouth off. He has the best of intentions and the best motive. He's a perfect example of somebody who has a zeal but not according to knowledge. And I look at him, and I see so many God's people over my years, even myself in, in, in younger years of my life. But to study those three men, Peter, James, and John, uh, the great unknown study of the Bible. But you know the story here. They've taken the Lord Jesus Christ. He's in before Pilate now. James has taken off. All the 12 have gone. John is on the inside watching what's going on. He's the closest one to it. But Peter, Peter, Peter won't go in. 
Peter's standing by the fire. And I've always thought that was interesting. And he's standing there by the fire warming himself, you know, and the Bible says there that a damsel comes up to him and he says, she says, aren't you one of the twelve? And Peter, warming the fire, says, no, I'm not. A few moments later, another little maid, the Bible says, comes up and he says, you're Peter, aren't you? You were with him. This time the Bible says that he, he says no with an oath. You know what that means? He says, no, by God, I'm not. I swear to you by heaven, I don't know this guy. By all the saints, I'm not with this guy. She goes away. Then the Bible says, them that stood by. You see, somebody was watching his life, and he didn't even know it. Here it is, the darkest hour of his life. Here it is, the hardest time when everything he knows, he has known for the last three years, is now cascading and crashing down around his ears. And the Bible says, the first little gal came, no, I'm not. The second little gal came, and he swears by an oath. And he said, I, by God, I don't know this guy. And yet there's others standing over there, and they're saying, boy, he looks like one of them to me. Somebody's always watching your life. So the next guy's group comes over, and they say this, hey, you must be Peter. Your speech doth betray you. You see, that's what ought to betray you of not being part of the world. They watched his life. They saw who he was. They heard what he had said. And now when he denies it with his body by saying, I don't know him, they come to him and face him and they say, hey, look, you must be one of his. Your speech betrays you. So you know what he does to make the final thing work? He curses. He says, look, I don't know the blankety-blank son of a blank. I'm tired of you blankety-blank people coming up and asking me. I am not with the blankety-blank guy that you say I'm with. And at that point, notice, they never come back again. Now, what if? What if? This is what the old preacher preached on. What if they were coming to him to find out about Christ? There's somebody always watching your life. What if somebody comes to you at work and doesn't ask you right out, but they come to you because deep down in their heart, they've heard that you're a Christian. They saw your Bible on your desk. And now because they have a deepness in their heart and they think you might have some answers, they simply come to you under a pretense of, could I use this or could I use that, hoping that they might get an entry into your world to ask you about the Savior that they think that you know, and what do they get? Same thing these two little gals in this group of guys got from Peter. Your speech doth betray you. What you say doesn't line up with the way you live. I'm telling you, it's a simple fact. You hear me say it to you folks all the time. Look around, look behind, and look ahead. There's somebody always watching your life. And for you understanding your liberty in Christ, this is one of the greatest verses in the Bible that you'll find. No man liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself.
the importance of grasping the concept of the verses that I gave you over the last couple of weeks. Galatians 5.13, that you don't use your liberty for an occasion of the flesh. 1 Peter 2.16, that using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness. Or 1 Corinthians 6.12, that all things are lawful. Sure they are, but not all things are expedient. That all things, 1 Corinthians 10.23, are lawful, but not all things edify not. And then he says that I will not be brought under the power of any. You know, I've never preached on liberty in Christ that I don't have somebody come to me. And over the last week, you know, since last week, and they were good questions. And they were not, you know, malicious in any way, shape, or form. I want you to understand that. And one of them uh, heard it on the uh, tape already and called me and had a question. And they live all the way out in uh, Colorado someplace. And they called me and asked me. And then I've had a couple other people ask me. And, and uh, you know, they, they asked really good questions. But I, it always happens, and I knew they would. And I didn't get into this last week because I wanted to finish it up this week. And I wanted to see, you know, uh, just how things went. But here was the question. And I'll just, this is the question, so I'll just throw this one out. It could be anything, but this is what I got. And I get this all the time. Somebody says, okay, I have liberty. And you said, Bob, I heard on the tape, you said that, you know, all things are lawful, not all things are expedient. And uh, it's one of those things where, you know, if all things are lawful and I can do whatever I want to do and all things will be done in moderation. And here was the question. And why can't I just enjoy a beer every once in a while? And, And that's a legitimate question. I get that all the time. I think God's people are the biggest beer drinkers in the world. I mean, I, that's the only thing they ever asked me. Now, let me ask you a question. You're a child of God here this morning. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about your liberty in Christ and see this thing for how it is. What's wrong with having a a beer? What's wrong with having some kind of margarita, wine cooler, whatever you have, I don't know, or whatever people have, or whatever, not necessarily you. And the answer is really simple. And this is where I get into trouble when preaching liberty. Because people will take what you say and they'll use it a license to do what they want to do. You won't hear everything I say. You'll just hear what you want to hear. Happens all the time. What's wrong with it? You want to know what's wrong with it? Do you want to know what's wrong with you as a child of God having a beer from the Bible? Here it comes. Not one cotton-picking thing. And there was silence in heaven for the space of half an hour. I'm just being honest. Now, you know what? I know full well by saying what I'm just saying that I just telegraphed to some of you a license to go do what you want to do. But don't run out and get your six-pack before you hear the rest of the message. Now, I'll tell you the truth. When I was in the Army and we had bolts that we couldn't get that were rusted shut on something, you know what we used to get them open with? Coca-Cola. I can't imagine what Coke does to your insides. I do know what it does to bolts. And I still drink it. But I want to be honest with you this morning. Let's just put it right across the plate waist high. Here it comes. Just call me a pitcher. The Coke is probably 10,000 times worse for you than one beer. Ready to leave the church yet? Well, let's just go have a drink and talk about it. Now, with that being said, let me ask you a question for some of you that think that way. I had a guy come into my office years ago, and he was a nice kid, and he was not a smart aleck. And he legitimately had a question about the same thing, because I think it came up in one of our Monday night Bible studies back then. 
And he come over and he sat down and he said, he wants you to know, I, I said, I really enjoy this and I'm saved and I'm on my way to heaven. I'm really learning the Bible. But he said, he said, I want you to know, he says, uh, I, 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 I don't indulge in it. I'm certainly not a drunk. But he says, I want you to know that I like a beer every once in a while. And he just said, I just wanted you to know that since I'm going to come to your Bible study and probably join your church. And I said, oh, that's okay. I like one every once in a while too. Should have saw his face. Immediately, he says to me, you mean you drink one every once in a while? And I said, sure, man. Maybe we can have just one before we leave here tonight because you know what? We can do that. And he thought it was appalling that I, and I said, well, what's wrong with me having one? He says, well, you're a preacher. I said, no, we're both preachers. Not only are we both preachers, but we're both missionaries. And not only are we both missionaries, we're both ambassadors. Now, you know what your problem is? You've got one set of rules for you and one set of rules for me. If it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander. Now, I don't know if you're the goose or the gander, but let's do it. Immediately, he come to the point where he thought himself that it was okay for him. But if you're a preacher or a pastor, that it was wrong. And see, that comes down to the idea that if you're here this morning and you're saved, you think I'm a preacher and you're not. That's your problem, basic fundamental problem. Now, I may be the pastor and you not, but if you're saved here this morning, you should be a preacher. And you should be a missionary to wherever you work, and you need to be an ambassador wherever you go. You and I, no matter whether you're a pastor or a Christian or whatever, we're both living sacrifices. Now, you have the liberty to do it, and there's no law in the Bible against it. But here's the deal. Having a Coke doesn't associate you with the same thing that a beer does in people's eyes. Remember what I said last week? All things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. Why? Because not everything is edifying. Remember it said, restrain from all appearances of evil? Remember it said, let not your good be evil spoken of? And very frankly, today, I don't drink a beer even though I know I could because I know what it associates with. What would you think? How many of you would come back to church next Sunday if you walked into a restaurant and I am putting down a tall one? Some of you probably would. But the bottom line is simply this. In your mind, it would bother you if it wouldn't bother most of you. And I just say, hey, how you doing? You know, with me, I just have to smell it and I'd be on the floor. I mean, I, I never drank in my life. I, 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 this is the only thing I'm talking about that I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> now, here's the problem. Try to witness to run and friends. They will throw it right back in your face. Unsaved people know what's right and wrong more than God's people do. Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll go ahead and put you with a guy who's an alcoholic, and you can help get through his and help him get the back just to have one every once in a while. Try that one on for size. You see, we can't be like Peter. We can't be a stumbling block. We just simply cannot. No, I know what you say, and I know where it goes, because I know how human nature goes. Well, I'll just do it at home. That's a great idea, where nobody knows. Really? What about your kids? Or don't you care about them either? Now, look, folks, I'm going to say something to you here, and I'm only going to say it one time. And you better get what I'm saying. And I know some of you don't like it, and some of you won't like it, but I don't know what to tell you. i got an obligation to tell you the truth. Why? I feel like Jesus sometime, or Paul sometime, when he said to him, Why, am I your enemy? Because I told you the truth? Now, in the Bible, there are some automatic laws, the laws of life. Now, I know we're not under the Old Testament laws, but there's universal laws the world runs by, just like the law of gravity. 
And one of those law is the law of sowing and reaping in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. It simply says we reap what we sow in our personal lives with our families, our children, our husbands, our wives. And it says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. What do you mean, be not deceived? Don't deceive yourself that you can say I'm a Christian and then do whatever you want to do because you got liberty and not pay a price tag for it. Boy, many, many times that price tag is hard to pay. I mean, we like to sleep around, drink around, sleaze around at home or wherever, and then we think our children don't see. Just think of your children as this. Think of your children as video recorders, video recorders that are running 24-7. They're videoing in their little minds everything they see you do, everything they hear you say, everything they see when you don't think they do. Now, you know what the Old Testament counterpart is to that Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 is? It's Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. And it simply says this, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not bow down to them nor serve them. Why? Because God says, I'm going to visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. It said, the fathers, hello, We pass our sins onto our children and then the law of human collapse comes in and it sets in and then your children have the same problems but they have them in a greater manifold than you had them because the things spiral down, not up. Some of you are in this church and you came in from families where they were not saved. They were not in the Bible. They did everything and you got caught up into it. And you now, by the grace of God, have the chance to break that cycle. You have the chance to give your children the greatest gift you could ever give them and their grandchildren and their grandchildren. And that is the guarantee of godly generations down the line. But somebody has to clear up a spot and break the chain. He says, I would visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation. And then you'll wonder why you have kids, probably your kids. You'll wonder why they do the same things that you do, only in excess. I had a guy one time years ago that was an alcoholic, and I tried to work with that guy and work with him, and I said, you know what, how did you ever get into this mess? I didn't expect he was going to give me the story he told me. He says, when I grew up, my dad worked hard and he was a good man. And he said, every night before my dad went to bed, he had one or two bottles of beer when he watched the ball game or what he did or whatever he watched. And he said, he sat there in his easy chair and he drank two beers and he went to bed. He says, you know how I got hooked on booze? After my mom and dad went to bed, I snuck back down and I drained the suds out of his bottle at nine not deceived yeah you can do it you can do it today you have a bible you have church you have the holy spirit of god you have everything you need to break that generation cycle you better study generations in the bible you have the choice to train up a child in the way he will go or you have a train up a child and away he'll go The Bible says, as arrows are in the hands of a mighty man, 
and hit your target, so are children of the youth. You launch your children into life, to heaven or hell, wherever they go, whatever they do, simply based on what you do in your life. And while you're getting it, get this. What I'm about to tell you is the simple bottom line. God has a plan. He has a model. He has a pattern. He has a pattern for your children. He has a pattern for new Christians. Yeah, yeah I know you got liberty. You can do whatever you want to do. But you realize there's some things in this life that just isn't about you. You realize there's always somebody watching your life. They may go to heaven or hell. You know what? If we all do stupid things. We all make mistakes. Everybody does. I do. You do. We do some boneheaded things. But my God, people, don't just go out to do it. Thumbing your nose at the authority so you can do what you want to do with your liberty. I give you a new Christian to deal with. Somebody that just gets saved. They know nothing about God. They know nothing about God. They know nothing about the Bible. Don't you understand what I'm saying? They don't know anything about God. They don't know anything about how to get to God. When I put you in their world to disciple them or work with them or help them, do you know who God is in their life? It's you. You're what they see. You're the pattern by which they formulate their mind concept of God. You, a child of God, they're looking at one of God's children who ought to mirror image their father, and that's how they learn about God. They learn it by what you say. They learn it by what you do. And in time, if you're doing your job... You will turn them over and give them directly to God that they can build their own relationship that they don't have to look at you anymore. That's what I do with you in the Bible. You come in, you don't know nothing about the Bible. You're so stupid, you don't even know anything. You don't even suspect anything. So I teach you the Bible. I give you everything you know. But do I allow you to stay that way? No! I'm like a little mother eagle pushing you out on the limb as your wings get clipped and get you out a little farther because you got to fly someday. Can't stay in the nest. And so I prod you along a little bit like a mother eagle nicking you with her nose to get you out on the limb. And like that little baby eagle, it's high. You're in a mountain. It's scary. And one of these days, she just boots you off. And you start to fall, but then you open up your wings and your arms, and then you catch the air, and you float, and you learn to fly. That's why God likens himself to Israel in Deuteronomy 32. as a mother eagle who spreadeth her wings over her young. That's what a pastor's job is. And when you become part of this ministry and disciple somebody, that's your job. That young Christian will only ever see God and their first impression of God will be the per- There is a absolute, tremendous, tremendous, tremendous responsibility that you have in, in nurturing somebody in the Word of God. We all 
make mistakes. We're going to do dumb things. But my friend, just going out and making them because you can at the expense of another younger Christian. I know I have standards for people. And I know that people are imperfect. I hear it all the time. Everybody likes to point out everybody else's problems. I got a list of them. Everybody gives me about everybody else. We all have issues. I'm willing to deal with that. I understand we're human. We all make mistakes. We're all made of clay. But that doesn't take away from the fact that we are supposed as God's people to be a living sacrifice. We're supposed to grow up with his mind. We're supposed to use the Bible principles and make them life principles and issues of life for other people. I just don't want them to see God with a cigarette in his hand. I just don't want them to see God with a beer in his hand. Okay, get mad at me. I just don't want a young some Christian to look at some gal or some guy who are living together or having sex together outside of marriage and just saying, well, that's okay because uh, they got to be Christian. No, it's got to be better than that. We think we hide it, but our kids are smarter than we ever thought about being. Now, God's got a pattern, and that first pattern is for young Christians. What they see in God and understand about God is what they see in you that work with them. You know what? And I've heard this. Most people in churches, they don't want a perfect pastor because there is none, and I'm far from perfect. They don't want a perfect pastor. They just want a real one. And that's what most people want with people that work with them. They don't want somebody perfect. They just want somebody that's real. Now, the second thing in God's method is your children. Boy, what a pattern God does. That little child into a young adult of adolescent years. And you know what? It's the same thing. Only in a more, more graphic way. How little child growing up knows absolutely nothing about God. Do you ever stop and think of this? Do you ever see this past yourself? Do you ever just get yourself out of the way and what you want? Your, your, your fleshly desire? Do you ever just put them out of the way and see what God really wants and the impact your life has because there's somebody always watching your life? You raise that little kid, you, get, you give birth to it, you, you bring it into this world, and that little guy grows up, and that little girl grows up, and they become a baby, and they look at you, and you nourish it, and you feed it, and you clothe it, and you know what? It comes to the point where that little baby growing up, someday's going to have to be saved. See, that little baby girl is going to grow up to an adult girl. That little baby boy is going to grow up to an adult guy. And someday, he's, they're going to come to the point where they're going to have to make their choice between heaven and hell. And you might be able to change their diaper. You might be able to feed them. You might be able to protect them. You might be able to clothe them. You might be able to keep the bullies away from them. But you'll not make that decision for them. But then yet you do. As arrows are in the hands of a mighty man, so are our children of the youth. They grow up, all they know of God is you. They don't know how to read the Bible. It takes mom and dad introducing them to Jesus. You know how mom and dad introduce them to Jesus? They see God in you, mom and dad. Do you ever notice what Jesus did? It's the pattern. I don't, I don't really care if you like it or not. It's the pattern. Why did he give a husband and wife? Why doesn't it work for two lesbians to raise a kid? Why doesn't it work for two gay guys to raise a kid? 
Why was the model and a pattern a husband and a wife? Well, obviously, a husband and a wife have to have a husband and a wife to have a child in the first place. But what about after that? What is God's pattern? What is the plan? Is it more to that? Do you actually think that God just puts you down here so you could have kids and have sex and enjoy sex without feeling guilty about it? I don't know why he would do that. Most of you have sex and without a marriage and you still feel good about it. But all of those things that he puts together and puts into your life and then, and then lets those go and it just stands back and says, okay, keep populating the earth. No, no, there's a pattern. You raise corn, you raise rabbits, you raise Labradors, you raise German shepherds, but you train children. And right now your children, every one of them, are in a training process watching your life. Oh boy. Oh boy. And you think they don't see? They think that you don't hear? You think they don't know? Those little video cameras are running 24-7. And you are all they ever see are gone. That's why so many kids grow up. Not every kid makes mistakes. There's no perfect kids. I'm talking about the kids that just grow up and have no concept of God. I'm talking about the kids that grow up and just go to hell in a handbasket because all they ever see of God and what God intended for them to see was mom and dad and seeing God in mom and dad. Why do you wonder why it's a mom and a dad? I'll tell you why. Ephesians chapter 5 says the dad is supposed to be Christ. It says the woman is supposed to be the church. Now your job in time, isn't it, is to get your daughter and your son to grow up, accept Christ as their own personal Savior, and then get involved in a relationship in a church. Well, you know what? God set the pattern for the time they were a baby, for the time they were born. People talk about baby dedication. Somebody asked me, why don't you have a baby dedication here? We probably have them all the time. You just miss them. Well, I've been here every Sunday. Yeah, it's because there's a pattern to it. Every baby in the Bible that was, that, was, that was dedicated to God, hey, the pattern, pattern, P-A-T-T-A-R-E-A-N-I-N, pattern. The pattern in the Bible is they're dedicated before they're born, not after they're born. You know why we do it after? Because that's tradition. You know why we don't do it before? Because that's Bible. Dad's supposed to be Christ. Mom's supposed to be the church. Your kids should grow up in your marriage understanding what the relationship is between Christ and the church by watching the relationship between mom and dad. Boy, how about that for a great lesson, huh? Growing up in a thing where mom's cussing and screaming and dad's cussing and screaming and fighting and breaking things and throwing things and threatening divorce and getting upset and calling each other stupid names I couldn't even repeat today. And that's how kids grow up today with a warped concept of Christ and the church. And then we wonder why they have struggles when they grow up. God, people, get a clue. Your liberty, yes, your liberty, and you can do whatever you want. But, brother, be not deceived. God is not mocked. And when you don't understand the patterns of your family and your life and everything that goes on, then God comes down and you reap what you sow. But the problem is God holds the iniquity of the fathers, 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 because you're supposed to be the spiritual leader. Your kids pay the tag for it. Kids always pay the tag for it. Kids always pay the price. You're saved here today, most of you. So you think you can do what you want to do, live your life, have all the beer you want, smoke what you want, do what you want, go where you want. You're saved. You're going to heaven. But your kid don't have that in the barn yet. And they grow up and you get to go to heaven and they get to die and go to hell. That's a great deal. That's a great deal. 
That wife and that husband is a picture of Christ in the church. That relationship, when it's the right relationship, will bring them to the point where they will understand exactly what they've got to get into and you can lead them right into the right relationship with Christ and win them to Christ based on what? 10, 12, 13 years of them seeing mom and dad in a, in a, in a warm, loving, fuzzy relationship that breeds security. They never hear any bickering. They never see any fighting. They never see any knockdown drag out. They don't hear cussing with each other. I'll tell you what, I grew up and I know most of you have been in situations like this. I grew up up and every Christmas in my life, every Christmas I can remember, I was scared to death my mom and dad were going to get a divorce. They fought over the stupidest things in this world. You know what it usually was? Getting a Christmas tree straight. I remember one time a little kid, my mom hit my dad over the head with a chair. Broke the chair. My dad went down in the garage and sat in his car. I worried all day that he, something was wrong with him. I wanted to go down, but I was afraid because of anger. Theirs, not mine. I remember one time they got in a fight one time so bad that they, my dad took my mom's glasses and, and busted them up and threw them out because she couldn't see squat without glasses. And here I am, just a little guy about that big. And this sounds stupid what I'm about to tell you, and it's ridiculous, but this is what little guys think. And I wanted my mom to see. So I had, out of my chemistry set and out of my little erector set, I had two little magnifying glasses. You know what I did? I took two of them and taped them together. And I put little handles on them. And I said, here, Mom, here's some glasses for you. Then when she put them on, she looked like she was looking through two Coke bottles. That didn't work either. <laughs> That's not my point. My point is... Now, I know that, I know that you know, I'm not, there's no, there's no, let me tell you something, folks. There is no, there is no knight in shining armor and, and fairy tales about marriage. Every marriage struggles. If you come over to my house sometime and you want to see it, if I get the bedroom cleaned up, I'll show you a big hole in the door in the bathroom. I put that hole in there probably, what was it, Thursday or Friday? <laughs> <laughs> I put that hole in there probably 35 years ago. And one of my mad rages, I don't even remember what it was about. I kicked that door so hard, and I put a hole in it. My little girls were standing right there and watched it. I never replaced that door. I always left that door on. You go today, that hole's in that door. You know why I never replaced that door? Because I don't go in that room, that I don't look at that, and I don't walk into that bathroom, or I don't walk into that bedroom, I don't see that hole in that door, and I don't remember how stupid I was on that day. Everybody blows it. You know what I did? When I come to my senses, I went and got my kids down, and I sat down, and I said, you know what? Dad was wrong. I never should have done that. I lost my temper. I shouldn't have done that. I kicked the door. That's a stupid thing. I never, 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 never should have done that, and I want you to know I will never do it again, and I haven't done it again. We've replaced eight or nine windows since that point, but never the door again. <laughs> Come on. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you, you have the Bible, you have this church, you have the Holy Spirit of God, you got me as your pastor, you got other people in your life, and yet your little children grow up in World War III. They hear the bickering and the fighting and the name-calling all because we won't do what the Bible says because we're so selfish. And let me tell you something, folks. If you think the devil will miss that opportunity with your kid while you're doing what you want to do, you don't think you won't come in the back door and give those kids and grab those kids? You're nuts. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. 
He'll visit that iniquity to the third and fourth generation till somebody down the line decides to break it. I can have a hundred thousand King James Bibles and 60 million principles and 3,000 people to help you, but if you don't clear off a spot and say, I'm going to change and I'm going to do what the Bible says and I'm going to put my passion, my pride, everything aside, and I'm going to do what the Bible says. And then if you don't five, ten years down the line or you get in another goofy marriage and you, or you get married and you get a divorce and then you walk around and scratch your head and I say, well, I wonder what happened. Nobody's perfect. I'll tell you one last thing, and then I'm finished. People not only, they watch what you go through when you go through adversity. Nobody's always watching your life. They don't listen to what you say about your relationship. They watch how you live when all goes against you. When everything falls apart, old Mel Sabaka used to say, and I've never forgotten, he used to say, you know what, if your Christianity is not contagious, then your Christianity is contaminated. Our Christianity ought to be contagious to the people that's around you. You know why we've had so many people saved in this last couple of months since the first of the year when you guys really took third, that thing third, that thing New Year's Eve seriously? You know why it is? It's because people took it serious about the fact that what they had, they had to give to somebody else. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. I told you the story, and I end with this. I told you the story how years ago I heard a preacher tell the story about, about what do you get when you squeeze a lemon? And everybody says, well, when you squeeze a lemon, you get lemon juice. And he said, well, you'd think that, won't you? He said, but the reality is, whatever you squeeze, when you squeeze a lemon, what's really on the inside comes out. And he's told the story how in his down south someplace that somebody was going in, this has been years ago, and injecting poison in the lemons in a grocery store, which would be pretty easy to do. People were buying the lemons, coming home and squeezing the lemons and making lemonade, drinking it, and dying. And he said, you know what? He said, they were buying it because when they squeezed the lemons, you would just think that lemon juice came out. But in reality, there was something else in there, and that's really what came out. And then he asked the question, what do you get when you squeeze a Christian? Well, when you squeeze a Christian, you'd think you'd get one thing. But the truth of the matter is, when you, me, when we're squeezed, you know what the bottom line is? Whatever's on the inside comes out. People ought to look at your life and see you going through the things you go through with. We're supposed to have the Bible. We're supposed to have the hope. We're supposed to have everything that God has for us. We're supposed to have everything that we could ever want in our life and have the victory in everything that we do. And I know we're not perfect, and I know we make mistakes, and we fall down sometimes. But the bottom line is we are supposed to have the victory, and that's what people look for. People don't care about your Christianity when everything is going good, when you got a raise at work, or you got a new car, or you won this, or you got that, or you found this, or somebody gave you this. They look at you when your world folds up like a broken accordion around your neck and nobody's around you. That's when they watch if what you really have is really real. And many times the adversity that we go through, God puts in our lives simply because there's somebody else watching us because I'm going to tell you, last time, no man liveth to himself, and no man died to himself. Yeah, we have liberty. Yeah, there's lots of things I could do, but I won't do lots of things simply because there's somebody always watching my life. I got enough problems with Bob Alexander the way I am without just going out and looking for things to be stumbling blocks for people. And that's why Paul does this chapter. He takes two basic things, the eating and he takes the days. 
But you can see how he ties this thing together. And the first great principle we've looked at, there's four more in here we're going to talk about. We'll talk about one next week. But the one we talked at today is simply this. And you go out of here and you remember this in your liberty. Yeah, you've got a right to do whatever you want to do and all things in moderation and there's no law against it and you're not under the law, but there's always somebody watching your life. And the bottom line is simply this. It may be your children. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We